that regardless of what we are facing, our focus is not what we are facing, but on His response in grace. I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. I know what you're going through. But I have you. You are mine. I love you. And I will never let you go. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. The reading of the Word this morning is from Revelation chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. May God bless the reading of His Word. As you know, we're working our way through the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings. I wanted to begin this morning by asking, just by way of an introduction, how are you doing with your New Year resolutions? Do you remember back at the end of December, on the 28th, 29th, 30th, we thought, I'll make some New Year resolutions. And you also said very quietly to yourself, I'll not tell anyone about them, and that way I don't have to be accountable to anyone either. I want to say and inquire, I want you to see this first, Miss Betty. Can you see what's going on here? This, I have found, has been the single most helpful device when it's come to keeping my New Year resolutions. And it's for this reason that I promised myself back in December in those early days of January that twice a day, regardless of where I am or how busy the schedule gets or the circumstances of my life, that I would walk round the block twice. <laughs> and of course, what is said and what is meant are two entirely different things. And when it comes to understanding the Scriptures, a Sunday morning when we open up God's Word, what is said is what is meant. And that's the wonder of it. And this morning as we come to the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2, 8 through 11, we've only got three verses to focus on this morning. But those verses are packed with all sorts of theological teaching and practical application. Now, what is different about the church in Smyrna to us today? Well, as you can imagine, there's a multiplicity of things that are different, but there's also many things that are similar. And one of the things that are, is very different is this, that because they existed in Asia Minor back in the year 95-96 AD, they were undergoing a period of persecution. 
Nero was the emperor immediately before Domitian. There wasn't empire-wide persecution just yet. That would come later under Trajan. But Nero was a pretty nasty guy, and he'd put Christians to death and all sorts of reasons. And in fact, on one infamous occasion, and he continued this practice for some time, was that he would have Christians arrested, tried for their faith, he would dip them in oil, and then he would put them on large metal stands and set them on fire in order to light the imperial gardens in downtown Rome. That's how bad Nero was. And Domitian wasn't too far behind. Domitian was well known as a military leader. He was an adroit administrator. Some historians say he was one of the best uh, emperors in terms of leadership and running the empire, but he was not a friend of Christians. In fact, Domitian was the first to insist on emperor worship, and he insisted that people refer to him as God the Lord. He also went on to say that in proclaiming his greatness, they must speak, speak of him as Lord of the earth, invincible. They would address him as glory and holy and thou alone. And you can imagine the difficulties that had for Christians who said, Jesus is Lord, and Domitian said, no. And so they were often arrested, persecuted, and John, of course, was exiled to Patmos. So that persecution was taking place not only were the Christians in Smyrna being marginalized, not only were they being minimized, but some of them were beginning to lose their job. Others were arrested, some exiled, as John was. And notice how Jesus writes to them. He begins to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. These are the words of him who is. Now, why does Jesus begin that way? Because what he needs them to understand is this, that even though the pressure is on, and that pressure was relentless, even though they had their backs up against the wall, he needed them to understand who is speaking to them, who is comforting them, who is bringing reassurance, and he is the first and the last. And that's why he begins, he who is. He who is before eternity began. He who is before there was a Roman Empire. He who is before there was a Domitian or a Smyrna he who is before Asia existed. He is before the earth came to be, before matter or darkness or light or air. He is. And what he's saying to the church in Smyrna is this, that you may be under unrelenting pressure. People may think you're odd or you're weird. You may be persecuted for your faith, but understand this, that I straddle all of history. Eternity past and eternity to come belongs to me, and I have sovereign power and control over all of it. And that's why he's saying to them, he who is the first and the last. 
In other words, he's saying the Roman Empire will not have the last word. When history comes to its cataclysmic end, he who is will be there. He has the last word. When we have been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, there's no less days to sing His praise than when we first begun. That's what's going on here. That's what the people in Smyrna needed to hear, that He has them in the palm of His hand and will not let them go, and everything and anything that happens to them, He will be right there with them because He is. And He needed them to hear that. Can you imagine what that was like for that small church in the city of Smyrna, surrounded by gods, in the midst of a community who worship any and every god they like? Some have now been arrested, tried, minimized, marginalized, and may now probably be meeting in secret when this letter comes to them. And can you imagine the sense of relief that washes over them when John reminds them that Jesus was writing to them and that He, the Alpha and the Omega, has them in the palm of His hands. Now, having said all of that, notice what else He says. These are the words of Him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Think of that. Think of the power it took to be victorious over life and death, and if He is and also has power over life and death, what reassurance, what comforting thoughts that they belong to Him and also we belong to Him. And when you are tempted to think of what is it that defines us as a people. What are our core values as a church over and above being a place of grace, a place of prayer, and a people who engage with the living God? We belong to Him who is the first and the last, He who has victory over life and death. That's an incredible thought for us, never mind the church in Smyrna. And then he goes on, verse 9. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Now, why is that important? It's important for this reason. And I suspect the folks in Smyrna and generations of Christians since, in reading this passage, come fairly quickly to that incredible conclusion that here we have a perfect Savior, perfect for us, whatever our circumstances, whatever the challenges in our life, He is a perfect Savior for us. Why? Because He says to us, I know your afflictions. I know them. And that word afflictions means tribulations, that unrelenting day-by-day -day pressure, the challenges, the difficulties that from time to time we will live through, but certainly the difficulties in Smyrna. 
I know you. I know your afflictions. I too understand persecution. For he was the one who was arrested and tried and tortured and executed for his faith. And when he says, I know what you're going through, he means it. That is why he is the perfect Savior for us. He understands the challenges that are before us. He's been there at a much greater level than hopefully we will ever be. And he says, I know you, and I know your afflictions. And then he adds, and I know your poverty. Some in Smyrna probably not only have been made to feel odd or been marginalized or minimized, but may have lost their job because of their faith. The children may be looked at and pointed in the street. Perhaps it's at the stage here now that the Roman authorities are, of course, persecuting them in that localized area of Smyrna. Maybe that others are not only pointing to them at the street, but shouting at them, throwing things at them. If you have a sense of Nazi Germany in the mid to early 1930s, that's what's going on here. That's what's happening here. I know your poverty. I know your afflictions. Then he adds wonderfully, yet you are rich. Yet you are rich. Now, as you read that, the temptation is to say, but Lord, this is not so much a paradox as a contradiction. How can you say, I know what you're going through, unrelenting, terrible pressure socially, and losing your income, destitute, how will you survive? And yet you say you are rich. What does he mean here? Where is he taking the folks at Smyrna? What he's saying is this, Remember, I am the first and the last, that I straddle all of history, and I sovereignly direct and lead and guide all that is to come. You are mine, and I know you. And because you are mine, and because I know you, you are rich. Think of every un excuse me, think of every sin that's been forgiven. You are rich. Think of every prayer that's been wonderfully, spectacularly answered. You are rich. Think of when you got to the end of your rope and you thought, I can go no further. He was there. He was there. You are rich. How many times over the last year, 18 months, have we come to a passage in Scripture on a Sunday morning, and I have reminded you of that spectacular doctrine, which is a living reality for every Christian, and it's called union with Christ. Not only does the gospel impact our lives and transforms us, but God the Holy Spirit Himself then comes to indwell us and live within us. And how often have we made the point that the same moral and supernatural power that brought Christ back from the dead lives in us? 
And the temptation is to forget it or take it for granted or ignore it and become apathetic. And Jesus is here reminding the church in Smyrna, yet you are rich, and we are rich spiritually. That's the point He's making right here. And then He takes them a step further. And what does He say? He says, do not be afraid for what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, what is going on there? Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Devil, the devil, Satan, will put you in prison for ten days. Now, when we come to the book of Revelation, we know that it's packed with imagery and symbolism, and sometimes that's difficult to interpret. Right here, we have the sense of Jesus saying to them, you'll be put in prison for ten days. Now, does He mean ten literal days, going in on a Saturday for ten days? I suspect not. Most New Testament scholars, and I've been reading this past week, will tell you this that the number 10 in the book of Revelation often is associated with completion. And so, what they are suggesting here is this, that as you read this passage, there is a period of persecution coming. It will be intense but short in duration. That's what's happening. And sure enough, Domitian was involved in persecution only in a, a in a localized area. The Apostle John was eventually released from prison in Patmos and went back to live in Ephesus, where he had been before his exile. So, interpreters will tell you that here is Jesus saying, intense persecution is coming for the church in Smyrna, but it will be short in duration. Ten days unlikely means literally ten days, but rather a restricted time. That's what's going on here. But also notice this, that Jesus is saying to the church in Smyrna that although you are under Roman persecution, it is not Rome who will determine the length of the persecution. It is He who is who gets to determine that. And what a wonderful, reassuring thought that He who is not only knows us, not only knows the challenges we face, not only stands astride world history, eternity past and eternity to come, but He not only steers and directs world history, but He is sovereignly in control of it. And when we get to the point where we are saying, Father, I cannot take any more of this, that testing comes to an end. Now, why does He test us in the first place? And Satan is right in the middle of it all, as you see from the passage. Remember the words, the epistle of James, almost the opening verse, verse 2, in fact, from James. And what is it that James writes? He says this, when you are tested, endure. 
In fact, he, cons- he says, consider it joy, my brothers, whenever you are tested, because perseverance, which comes from testing, creates character and makes us mature. Now, I don't think we should ever, ever as Christians give each other a high five and say, I'm going through a period of testing. Isn't it wonderful? But God will allow and sometimes bring testing our way. Because, of course, you know the analogy and you know the illustration I'm about to use. I worked in a steel mill for a short time in my early 20s, and when all of the elements that come together to make up steel were put together and the pressure was turned up and it got hotter and hotter and hotter, and when that steel was being created, iron and other components were being melted, you could hear it scream and the steel would do that. And the first night I was a night shift, and I heard the steel screaming, I thought, good night, what's going on? And what is going on is this, that the pressure is increasing. It is becoming unbearable, and all the impurities between the iron and other elements would come to the surface, and it was skimmed off and put to one side as slag, couldn't be used, But once the pressure was there, all the impurities came to the top, were scraped off, and you were left with that which is pure. And that's why on occasion, sometimes for a period, sometimes for a season, he who is will allow pressure to come into our lives in order that we become less dependent on the things around us and we become more dependent on Him and as a result become more Christ-like. That's what's going on here in Smyrna. Let me say finally, before I come to uh, my last point this morning, and it's this, that whenever you find yourself under unrelenting pressure, and it is never going away, and you wonder why the Lord is not taking it from you. What is our approach? Our approach is this. Father, help me not to focus on the challenges that I am facing, but let me please focus on your response in grace. We do not focus on the challenge before us. We focus in God's response in grace. Now, I have a surprise for you this morning. Quite frankly, I think it's one of the best surprises you'll have in this early part of the new year. And it's this. This morning, we've been studying the church in Smyrna. And I've indicated a couple of times, imagine what it would be like to be in Smyrna and receive a letter written by John that contains the words of Christ. Happened way back, as we know, A.D. 95. Yesterday morning, around 9.30, when I was sitting at my desk preparing, I remembered in the back of my mind that last year I had corresponded with some pastors in Turkey. And I remembered that one of the ministers I corresponded with 
was in a church in a place called Smyrna. And so this morning, not only are we noticing that the folks in Smyrna received a letter from John, we now have an email from the church in Smyrna. And he begins, and the way he begins is absolutely hilarious. Hello, Richard. As you're planning on having Sunday services tomorrow, you are probably not badly hit by the snowstorms you are having over there. Isn't that incredible that there's a pastor in Smyrna in Turkey concerned about our weather in Greenville, South Carolina? That's just remarkable to me. And then he begins, dear brothers and sisters in South Carolina, greetings from the church in Smyrna, modern-day Izmar in Turkey. Yes, biblical Smyrna still exists, and while we ourselves cannot claim to have been around for 2,000 years as a church on this spot, we can say that in some ways we carry on the spiritual inheritance of that early church. In many ways, we are similar to the first church, as our city today has four million people, and yet we only have about three or four hundred followers of Christ. But 20 years ago, that number was around 40 or 50. So, praise God, there is growth, and we value your prayers for the Lord's Spirit to move upon this city and this land. Currently, hundreds of thousands of Syrian and other refugees are coming to and through Smyrna, and we are reminded that God never called us to fear people, but to love them. And so, and so one more prayer request for us is that we as God's family have wisdom and strength as we seek to show our Father's love and compassion to these dear rejected and dejected people. May the Lord meet with you each Sunday as you worship, and particularly this morning as you delve into the book of Revelation and in the months to come. Zekai Tanyer, church leader, Smyrna. Now, how cool is that? 2,000 years, and we have correspondence with a church in Smyrna, a church who are saying this, that if we are to be the people of God He has called us to be, we are to be a place and a people of grace. We are to be known as a place of prayer, a place who will engage with the living God, but also reach out to those in need. And can you imagine what that means to have over 100,000 refugees passing through your town? What is the challenge for us today as we leave this morning? First of all, to remember that we are defined by our relationship with Him who is Secondly, that He knows us, and He knows us deeply and exhaustively and completely and comprehensively, and He is there for us. And also, that regardless of what we are facing, our focus is not what we are facing, but on His response in grace. I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. I know what you're going through but I have you, you are mine, I love you, and I will never let you go. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this wonderful passage of Scripture this morning. Thank You for Your incredible love and Your faithfulness and Your goodness to us. 
Father, as we go into this new week and into a new month, or not quite a new month, but Father, walk with us again. Remind us of your grace and the resources you bring to us and strengthen us and enable us as we seek to be the church of God in this place. For we ask it in and through the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. If you're interested in membership at First Presbyterian or want to learn more about our church and denomination, join us for our next First Look class on Sunday mornings. Register by calling 235-0496 or email us at contactus at firstpressgreenville.org.